Sons of the Hunt podcast, season two, episode 18. We are here with Courtney Colley, the communications specialist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. We're going to talk about CWD round two for us. <laughs> ding, ding. Mm-hmm. ding, ding. So, <laughs> yeah, um, we, we went through it. Um, it was this season. I think it was, was episode three. Something like that. Yeah. It was earlier. Yeah, one of the first ones we did. And no, was... I think episode three was uh, Logan. So it might have been four. Uh, who knows? It was oh early in the God. season. Look it up. Maybe. Google it. <laughs> I have a sponge brain, so yeah, um, yeah. That so happens. I mean, that that first episode, we just kind of tried to educate ourselves, yeah, on what and we it was. just brought you guys along for the ride, and so now we have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. So I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I th- I think I think I think you've got the qualifications. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about your background with, uh, I guess, as far as CWD is related and how. It relates, so. Yeah, um, so I went to Penn State, um, and I went through the Wildlife Technology Program, and then I followed that up with getting a master's at Shippen Spring University um, in biology, more specifically um, ecology-related fields, and I, the whole time going through college, actually starting out in college, I really didn't think I needed to go to college, just put that out there. And I got into wildlife, and I just loved it so much that I ended up getting a master's degree in it. Um, but my whole goal, for the most part, going through was to become actually a bird biologist, an avian biologist. And as I was going through, though, I took a wildlife disease course in grad school. It was really the not the first time I was introduced to wildlife diseases, but really the first time that it was focused on that. And I just... Right really fell in love with diseases. This is really weird. Um, I actually have a favorite disease, wildlife disease. Sure. What's that? Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease. Wow. It is one of the only transmissible cancers in the world. Really? Yes. That's why the Tasmanian devils are going extinct. (laughs) No kidding. See, I was going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it, it affects the Tasmanian devils. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that's something I've never heard of to be honest with you. Not only that, but a transmissible cancer. That's yeah. uh, that's hmm. that's no wonder it's a. Uh, but that's the thing; it doesn't have to be pretty or cool to be neat. You know yes, what I mean? I just or, I found it really cool. Sense? Yeah. And in, um, kind of after I got out, I ended up working at the Elk Country Visitor Center. Worked with elk, and um, I saw the CWD communication specialist position open at the Game Commission, and something it was it was it. I don't know. Fate. Yeah, I just, I felt like I had to apply for it, and I did, and here I am now. And I, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I don't know how I got here, but there's definitely really rough days, but it just, you know, sometimes the shoe fits, I guess. So as the communication specialist, what are your, like, primary roles in that job? So my primary role is to increase communications with the public mm-hmm. on chronic wasting disease, so to help spread awareness, uh, to help gain support from the public. And then um, I do some human dimensions type work where I am really 
basically collecting data on what's the general knowledge about chronic wasting disease in the state and also um, what's the general support for management, those type of things. So I actually do collect data on that as well. And then it's also to increase communications within our own agency. Because believe it or not, sometimes in organizations, there's not that great communication. So uh, my job is to make sure people know what they're supposed to know in our agency. Recording? No. That's okay. Sorry. (laughs) You can dress me up, but you can't take me out. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But uh, yeah, so you're basically essentially out there answering the hard pressing questions. Yes, if you call the hotline, you're most likely going to be talking to me or, or Erica, so. Okay, so we said we would kind of, we think that you will be able to summarize CWD in like a compact version. Good, yeah, nice little package that's for, for easy somebody, to understand. Yeah, for somebody who's listening to this for the first time or, or just wants to know, what's the, the short version? The very short version. I can do this in one sentence. Chronic wasting disease is a fatal brain disease that affects members of the deer family. Bingo. See, see, no, I, I, my my level of intelligence is like probably one notch uh, below the crazy old guy at the end of the bar, <laughs> and just above like Mark getting a special tax exemption just for having me around. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> um, so that like my wheelhouse is is kind of like that. You know, like keep it simple and break it down using a lot of the, the terminology. I starting to acclimate better to it because um, I've been looking into it and reading it and trying to learn as much as I can about this. But um, you know, not to say our listeners are on the same level as I am, but I think it's you know, <laughs> it's appreciated uh, to kind of give a, a simpler explanation to what's going on because it's such a huge topic right now. I mean, you can't flip through a, a hunting Facebook group without seeing some kind of post or some sort of comment or, yeah. you know, uh, so it's definitely carrying a lot of weight right now. So I think, you know, to, to clear up a lot of the misconceptions and maybe clarify some of the, 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 the thought process that are going on out there is, is pretty important. So it's pretty awesome what you're doing uh, to kind of make this part of your everyday. Because like you said, it's, I'm sure every day is not awesome. Um, <laughs> as cool as a job as it is and it sounds like it could be, uh, I'm sure you definitely have days where you're like, man, this is this has just been – I don't want to look at my phone. I don't want to answer an email. It can be rough <laughs> sometimes. Go hide somewhere. It, can, it can be rough, but um, got to think about the bigger picture and what and we're trying it. to do. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that, that's awesome. So, so the, the basis of CWD is it's something that it's, it's always deadly, correct? It, there's really... As far as we know so far, yeah. um, any deer that has been infected with chronic wasting disease will die mm-hmm. um, at some point. I think um, one thing... That is important to point out with chronic wasting disease is that all deer that are infected, um, they don't always show symptoms. So on average, infected individuals don't show symptoms for 18 to 24 months. So that's really important to to kind of mention, like as we're mid hunting seasons, really, because uh, just because the deer looks healthy doesn't mean it's not infected with chronic wasting disease. Mm. Right. Could because it could sit dormant, correct? I wouldn't necessarily say dormant. It's just like, for instance, uh, chicken pox or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can be uh, infected with chicken pox, um, but it might be a week or so before you actually start seeing the rash that right. appears. So right. it's kind of the same thing. It takes some time for right. the symptoms of chronic wasting disease to actually show. 
Now, one of the things that we see, and it was actually one of the questions that uh, somebody submitted was uh, more along the lines of, you know, how many deer have we seen or that we know of that have physically died or expired from CWD? Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on that. I mean, cause I mean, I don't know if it's even a thought or it's more of a, a if it's even a reasonable answer to give, uh, one of the, the things I, th I think and you know, Mark and I was talking about this before is it's not so much the disease CWD that's getting these animals. It's just making them more vulnerable, uh, as they proceed through the, the symptoms to where there may be more vulnerable predation or wandering in front of a vehicle or something that's not necessarily the CWD that kills them but it makes them vulnerable to other causes of death. I mean, so, but that's one of the big things that people are always kind of like, well, how many have you seen really? You know, how many have actually died? And, you know, do you have any kind of stats on that as far as like? Yeah, so I think one of the things um, we know that deer die, they can die mm -hmm. directly from chronic wasting disease. Um, there's definitely studies out there, deer die in captive facilities from chronic wasting disease. Mm -hmm. We do get reports that of deer dying in a captive deer facility, and then after we test it, it's chronic wasting disease. So we do know that deer can die from chronic wasting mm -hmm. disease. It does happen. Um, the probability of somebody being out in the woods, let's just say in Pennsylvania right now, and be in the exact right spot to see the see a deer that's infected with chronic wasting disease, let alone a deer that's showing symptoms for chronic wasting disease, and then on top of that, actually watch or see that animal die. Right is going to be such a small percentage. Yeah, it's got to be the perfect storm. such a slow chance. Now, mm. as to um, with, uh, like, I'm trying to think of what I want to say. So, the like, deer, like, dying from, from chronic wasting disease, right, um, in general. So... These deer have tiny holes that are forming in their brain, and over time they get more and more holes accumulating. So yes, these deer may be more likely to die from a vehicle collision, or they might be more likely to die from hunter harvest. They may be more susceptible to predators. Um, that makes sense. They have holes that are forming in their mm -hmm. brain. The important thing to keep in mind is that there were studies that were done out in Wyoming that showed that CWD-infected deer are more likely to die annually than uninfected deer. They weren't necessarily looking at how they died. They were just looking at the survival rate difference. If a deer is infected with chronic wasting disease, it is going to be more likely to die. They actually found that white-tailed deer were 4.5 times more likely to die annually. So whether chronic wasting disease is the actual final cause of death or the holes that are forming in the brain allow that deer to become more susceptible to something else, that disease is still contributing to that deer's death. Right. Yeah. So it still is having an effect on the, po the population overall. Okay. And it's going to be slow, right? It, it, this is a slow-moving disease, so at first it's going to start out slow, but um, there are certain areas in Wisconsin right now that are reporting that 50% of their adult bucks are infected. Wow. I mean, it can definitely grow over time. Now, the I think I read it might have been in in the paper that the the bucks were is it three times more likely to contract CWD than the doe? Is yeah, it, so they're that just more was susceptible? from that was from data that um, Jared, our management coordinator, had looked at 
for the state of Pennsylvania. So that's what we're seeing um, the past couple years in Pennsylvania out of our, uh, I believe he said it was out of our Bedford Blair Fulton County area where is really what we could say ground zero for chronic wasting disease in the state. Is there a reason why a, a, a male would be more susceptible than a female to the disease? Or is... It could be a variety of things. It could be genetics. It could be um, behaviors, different behaviors between male to female deer. It could be a variety of different things. We don't quite know yet. It's just the pattern that we're seeing yeah. in our data. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah, so I found yeah. that kind of interesting that, you know, the, the bucks are more likely to yeah, contract you, it or are, have historically had more results, uh, positive results. Yeah, you wonder if it's just that they, they eat more? Could, so their, their maybe, faces are in you know, food more? Body, yeah. You know. Scrape activity maybe? Yeah, who knows? Yeah, uh, that's a good point, actually. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of it that way. So oh, They're that's always it. rubbing their faces on trees. and Yeah, marking and could be something like, like that. that. I, and I'm when when we read that question... The first thing that came to my mind was like, I think this guy is thinking that, you know, you guys are like walking through the woods and like, oh, there's, there's a dead one. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> like, so he was looking for like, okay, three yeah, yeah. or like some kind of number. But I mean, how, how do you ever know that? How do you right. know what That's deer like, died? To, like, you know? How common is it that you find, uh, like, well, let me ask you this. So, so um, road, roadkill, so you, are, what kind of testing, do you test roadkill at all or? Yes, so we test roadkill deer. We have what we call roadkill contractors. They okay. work specifically in the disease management areas. They may have a small buffer around the edge of the disease management area, but they're really focused within um, those disease management areas. And their primary responsibility is to pick up deer from within um, the area. So if you live within a disease management area and you see a um, dead deer along the road. Um, you can call it in to the local regional office. Actually, you can call it in um, also probably the pen vet, pen dot, sorry, as well, and um, let them know, and we'll call them and ask them to go pick up deer. Of course, they can't pick up every single right, right. roadkill deer that you see, but uh, I think last year we tested a little over 3,000 roadkill deer. Oh, no kidding. In the disease management areas, yeah. Yeah, one with, you know, kind of think if they're becoming more vulnerable to car impacts because of the the issues that come along with the symptoms of CWD that so that's cool you guys would actually test the the, the roadkill deer that makes sense yeah that sounds like a fun job get myself like a flat shovel yeah. but I'll tell you, I know the guys are probably doing this for as long as they have they got like a hoagie hanging out on one side of their mouth yeah. while they're shoveling <laughs> them in. it's no big deal you know what I mean yeah it's nothing to them yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as far as like, uh, is, is there ever been any evidence of like a genetic resistance to like any deer that are just like resistant? Like some people, like if I'm upwind of poison ivy, I'm screwed for like three weeks. Mm-hmm. Other people can like lay in it and be fine. Like, is there anything along, along those lines that would uh, cause a deer to maybe be a little bit more resistant to it? Um, so resistant is a, a, and immunity or immune are kind of words that we can't really relate to what we do know, but what we do know is there are genes that can make a deer more or less susceptible to okay. chronic wasting disease, so more or less likely to actually contract the disease. And then those individuals, depending on which genotype they have, um, they may succumb to the disease sooner or later. So okay. it, Deer that have the less susceptible genotype, it takes more or longer exposure for them to become infected with chronic wasting disease. And on average, we found that they live about six months longer 
once they're infected, which is maybe good news. But another way to think about it is if a deer is infected with chronic wasting disease and it lives six months longer, that's also six more months that right. it is now transmitting this disease through saliva, urine, and feces. Right, right, right. And, and uh, just, that was just running through my head. Every as, yeah. other, or other deer that are in that area. So um, that's just kind of in the beginning stages of, of learning about that. There was actually a study that just recently came out of Penn State that they did um, where they were looking at the genotypes of deer in South Central Pennsylvania along with um, Maryland. And um, there are some areas in uh, South Central, kind of Southeast uh, Pennsylvania that were shown to have a higher frequency of the more susceptible genotype. That they didn't look over the entire state of Pennsylvania. I'm sure he's doing more work on that, but we are doing some of that genotype work is already happening in Pennsylvania. Because cool, cool. like it's kind of like polar opposite of like, you know, if a, if a buck is more susceptible than a doe, is there like a, an opposite end of the spectrum where a particular deer might be less susceptible to it uh, for one reason or another? So, because that would probably be uh, help, helpful in, in trying to figure out how to combat this a little bit better if you could figure out some kind of like secret code that makes Superman Superman, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah and um, this could be potentially beneficial in um, the captive deer industry. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it could be potentially beneficial to them. Now, for wild populations, it would have to basically occur through natural selection and, sure. and evolution. So who knows what are those pressures that would either make that gene pass on or not. So it may or may not happen and it might take a long time for it to happen in the natural population so there's there's like so many things in there that i want to like touch on (laughs) i'm just going to try to like think of like pick the first one and i and one of the things that that is standing out that definitely needs to be noted is that you you guys are taking all this research that's not performed by the game commission so there are independent studies coming from universities and you guys are just taking that and interpreting it and yes. using it. So I think that's something that you should, that we should. Yeah, no, fair about. enough. Yeah, I agree. Cause I, I think there is a, a big public perception of where the, where the research comes from. Yes. So typically or generally, I mean, the game commission, we do do some research. Mm-hmm. We we're not completely hands off of research. Um, but a lot of our biologists and a lot of the people who work for the game commission, we're really basically the boots on the ground. Um, so we take what is out in the scientific community from what is found from universities, um, from people who are really dedicating their life to research, people who are specialists, who are disease ecologists, who are specialists, that this is literally what they do every day. Um, and we take what the published data gives us. Um, we look at many, many, many different studies, and we figure out what's really the best you know, action to do moving forward, and then we go and implement it. So um, very often we are not the researchers. Um, I will say, however, this year we did create a partnership with PennVet so that um, we will be dedicating 12 disease ecologists in the state of Pennsylvania to work on wildlife diseases such as chronic wasting disease. That's so, awesome. Um, and we will be collaborating with them. So we're going to be dabbling a little bit more into research moving forward. But That's all. That's Reassuring. Sounds Indeed. sounds great to hear that. And it all this sounds a lot more credible than the guys, you know, saying, 
I've spent 30 years in the woods. Yeah. And they, they just think that well, that's they know the deer. I mean, I've, I've been in the woods over 30 years myself, but I mean, you know, I, I don't pretend to be, uh, you know, a biologist uh, just because I, I've seen my share of stuff. Yeah. Like I, I've been hanging out with the deer for this long. I think I know. I was raised by coyotes. I yeah. live amongst just, the wild ones. I just don't understand why know? people can't accept research and science, things that, you know, can be replicated. And that's, that's I guess that's, we could do a whole other podcast on that. But Yeah, we've, we've had that conversation about how dug in people can be, yeah. uh, not only, you know, nationwide or as Americans, but Pennsylvanians in particular. I mean, you start messing with, uh, you know, somebody's deer. well, yeah. deer. Yeah, don't but, mess with the Pennsylvania deer. Yeah, you don't mess with them deer, man. I'm telling you. Uh, but you know, you, you start to like change. Look at look at all the pushback from the Saturday opener or the Sunday hunting. Like the pushback. You know, if you mess with someone's heritage, not heritage. That's the wrong word to use. But tradition. Tradition. You mess with someone's tradition. It doesn't matter what science is backing it. You're screwing up my my weekend before the deer yeah. opener. And so it doesn't matter what positivity is going to come out of it. You're messing with the thing I've done since I was old enough to do it. Change, and change I think is hard. <laughs> change is hard. Change um, is hard. I, I get that, yeah. But, you know, I think one Mark and I have pushed this since day one is trying to be open and use your brain, use logic uh, as versus emotion. Uh, you know, most of the people, I mean, everybody in this room, I'm sure, has is, is, is heard of it, and it's the North American model of wildlife conservation. I mean, there is no better program on the planet to conserve and, and help manage wildlife. And it started here. And when you get really deep into that, uh, that concept, you know, it's the, the seven sisters of mm -hmm. – the, there's seven components to it, and they call them the seven sisters. And the seventh one is – that it will be managed through a biological perspective, through science and through fact, not emotion. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that uh, people need to understand that. Like a lot of the stuff that's being done, you might not like it, but it's part of how it ha has to proceed. I think, you know, part, part of um, this is just not an easy thing. CWD is not a, a drop shot type issue. Um, and I think a lot of people think that it, it, it can be perceived as such, like, you know, you guys just got to figure this out. Just don't shoot all our deer. It's like, yeah, I definitely kind of what you're saying. People just have to figure it out. Like you guys just got to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times it's very easy because we want something to happen or we want a certain result that we just think, oh, well, why don't they just do that? You know, why don't we just do that? But Science takes time. I tell people that I don't know how many times. Science takes yeah. time. Yeah, can we rush a study? Can we rush research? Yeah, we can, but then you also have a higher probability of that research not being accurate and not right. being credible. So, you know, we have to take time. I mean, I always tell people that um, in the aspect of chronic wasting disease, yes, we've known about it since 1967. And I hear everybody, well, you've known about it for 50 years. You know, we should know more information by now. And we've learned a lot in those 50 years. Right. But if you think of chronic wasting disease in what I call disease years, in the amount of time it takes to do research on a disease and really truly know it, if you would think of it like dog years, they're yeah. in reverse. So if you are 50 years in studying chronic wasting disease, we are still really maybe 
10 years in. In the infancy of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're just, we're, we're just, you know, hitting the surface. Right. Um, so we got a lot more to learn. We have learned a lot. And, uh, but there's a lot of great people out there who are continually researching this. So I think that's a, a good segue into the, the next thing that you brought up was, so you're looking at tons of research at this point. Like, yeah. I don't know, can you even put a number on how many different studies are, let's say that you read a week. Um, any study that comes in on my Google alerts, uh, usually. Oh, so you have like alerts set up. <laughs> yeah, I have an alert set up for there you go. the term prion, chronic wasting disease, CWD. Um, so anything that's coming in on there, I have a binder that sits on my desk at work of mm -hmm. all of the CWD research that I have read. I always print them out and I save them in case I ever need them. I used to take them to programs with me, but it's getting quite heavy. Yeah. Um, it's probably about six or seven inches of studies right now. I Yikes. mean, that's probably two or 300 studies that I've read and there's always more stuff coming out. And I've also um, tried to find most of the state's wildlife um, or CWD response plans or their own management plans in other states. And I have read most of those as well. So, so as this research comes out, there has to be studies that aren't as credible as other ones, correct? So I wouldn't say that one study as a study in a general is like an individual study. One is more credible than the other um, until after it's peer reviewed and, and, and things like that. But just uh, one study versus another, no. But how credibility or how we get credibility in science is you have a study that comes out and let's say it's something new that you, you've never heard before. Um, how that builds credibility is over time, other scientists will replicate that study and they'll do it over and over again. And if you continue to get the same results or very similar results, over time that builds that hypothesis and it builds support for it. Um, so that's how we gain credibility in science is by replicating each other's work. and. Another, I would say another way that we build credibility in science is that scientists don't always agree. Right. And we challenge each other. Mm -hmm. You know, if everybody would just say, oh, that study just came out and they would all just go with it. Just accept it. Without yeah. challenging it, then, yeah, we probably wouldn't have very much yeah. credibility in We'd it. We'd probably still be drinking mercury and things like that. <laughs> Licking well, less That's the second yeah. time you've told me not to do that on this podcast. Yeah. I'm starting to get a complex. <laughs> it's like potato, potato, arm wrestle. Let's go. So... Obviously, I'm trying to segue into uh, something we discussed on our first CWD podcast, the research of Dr. Frank Bastian, mm -hmm. which at the time, you know, I didn't realize that was his second go around with that from kind of what I understood. I mean, I, re I tried reading the research paper and like I said, it's been a while since I read a research paper. So I was like, oh, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Looks good. <laughs> Nod and but smile and a lot of that. What I took from it was, okay, like, awesome. Somebody is trying to do this. Try, somebody's oh, yeah. trying to find a cure for this. And at the time, you know, the research coming out sounds hopeful. Sure. Since then, what have we learned about that? Like, where, where, I don't know. I guess what, what I should say is how many people have tried to replicate that? So um, I will first say that kind of like you're saying, it's a second go around. Um, 
I read one of Dr. Bastian's first research papers that actually came from the 1970s. Yeah. And um, that was when he first started looking at um, the cause of Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease is what he was really looking into. And that was when he kind of first proposed that it could potentially be a bacteria. So this is a hypothesis that has been around for pretty much as long as we've known about chronic wasting disease. And um, so from then till now, many different people have tried to replicate that work. And in actually 1982 is when the prion was really, um, the term was coined and, and found for chronic wasting disease. And, and I just said prion, I just threw it out there like everybody will know what that means. Mm -hmm. But um, it is what we believe is the causative agent of chronic wasting disease. It's just basically a misfolded protein. Mm -hmm. um, so whenever um, Stanley Prusner was, or discovered that we believe these diseases were caused by proteins. This happened because he originally, just like most people would have done back then, first thought it could have been a bacteria or a virus or a fungus. So he started using disinfection procedures that naturally inactivate bacteria, viruses, such right. as extreme heat, ultraviolet radiation. Right. Um, so he's trying all of these things that typically get rid of or destroy bacteria and viruses, and it wasn't working. Right. And that's what first led him to believe it must be something other than a bacteria and a virus. Um, another thing that we typically see with deer um, with chronic wasting disease is that they don't show an immune response. So that's something very interesting to note because bacteria and viruses are often things that come from outside your body they're mm -hmm. intruders mm -hmm. and when an intruder enters your body something foreign your the immune, immune system, system yeah. responds right. fever inflammation right. we don't see that in deer with chronic wasting disease so that hmm. suggests that the causative agent is something that the body recognizes as itself so wow that's something i that, that's the first time i'm hearing that that's really interesting actually it's like alien yeah right yeah. Yeah. So it, it really is it's, it's kind of interesting. So it's kind of like there's so many other things like that that mm -hmm. lead us to believe, um, and it just adds more support to the prion hypothesis. And, and like I said, um, many people have tried to replicate his work, and as far as I know, I have not seen his work be replicated yet. Um, I would be the first person, honestly, who would be overjoyed if he proved us all wrong and... You know, he was yeah. like, boom, here it is. Here's the cure, and it works. That would be amazing. That would make yeah. my job a lot easier. Because yeah. then instead of trying to figure out how are we going to manage this disease when there isn't a vaccine or cure, then it would be, all right, how do we figure out how to get this cure and vaccine into our wild population? Yeah. Right, right. That's a much more hopeful Sure, sure. Oh, absolutely. Know, and I think that's goal. what Mark and I kind of <laughs> yeah, got excited a little bit about, the fact that it was just a, a fresh perspective on something that seemed to be hitting a wall so yeah. many times. We're just you know a, what I mean? And, ridiculous so, optimists. Well, yeah. Much. You know, yeah, we're, we're uh, you know, a little romantic on that side. Not with yeah. each other, of course, because that's just kind of weird. Oh, geez, Jay. <laughs> But yeah, it's just there it, is a rumor that right we, now, uh, right now, we're just um, right now, the scientific community is supporting the idea that chronic wasting disease is caused by prion. And as a state agency, we would it would basically be irresponsible for us to choose to right. manage our 
deer population on an alternative hypothesis. Yeah. Well, with, with CWD, is it just like one specific, I don't know how to phrase it, like type or brand of CW? Is there like different versions of CWD? Different strands, yes. So there's more, okay. Because I would say that's got to kind of complicate things if there's more than one type of CW, a strand of, of I keep referring to it as CWD. That's just kind of the easiest way to do it. Oh, yeah, um, of course. So like how many different types are there? Like. Oh, is that, that even is something that's known or I, I, it's still kind of up in the air? Yeah, I would say it's still, uh, I would say it's still kind of up in the air, but I'm also not a microbiologist. Fair enough. <laughs> so, right, right. Uh, Fair enough. I do know that there's more than, there's, there's a couple different strands at least or more out there. They have seen different strands of prions. And I think whenever we're talking about different strands of prions, it means they basically fold a slightly different way. That's what okay. we're talking All about. Right. Um, one thing that I always like to point out, though, to people, because a lot of people don't realize this, most mammals have prions naturally in your body. So it's not just deer that naturally have them in the body. Right. People have prions naturally in their body. Mm -hmm. And we don't know the exact function right now of a prion when it's in its normal form. Um, but we believe it's doing good things for your body. It's benefiting your body. But whenever this prion misfolds, that's when disease occurs. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, I've, I've heard something along those lines as well. Uh, I was listening to a, an older gentleman talk about it, but he was about as boring as it got. It was painful, honestly, to listen to him. Uh, but he was talking about that. And I, I kind of got some out of that, out of that, how it's like it's they're in everybody and they're perceived to do something positive. Not really sure what it is, but... Once it misfires, it really misfires. And that's where we get the issues with like the the TSEs and stuff like that. Yes, so. yes, yes. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I'm learning a lot. This is cool. Yeah. So I guess uh, I don't know we covered Dr. Bastian and the other thing I think that's worth mentioning because I see his name brought up all the time. Like I told you, we posted uh, like we kind of probed a couple Pennsylvania groups and his name popped up a couple times. And I, I think that the one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that he's not even with LSU anymore. So he's not with like a, I don't know, a backer, would you say? Well, what, what, how would you? Um, I would just say he's no longer affiliated with LSU. Um, and that happened fairly shortly after, uh, I believe, Unified Sportsmen um, yeah. announced that they were helping to or to raise funding for Dr. Bastian's research. I believe that was in March or February, February. this year. February this yeah. year, like it was earlier this year, and mm -hmm. it wasn't. It was not that long afterwards that right. um, he was no longer with LSU. Um, you can speculate as yeah. to why that is, but um, are they building him a lab he, somewhere? He 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 <laughs> may have chose to leave on his own accord I, I don't know yeah it's like one bad article away from becoming like a comic book villain yeah right yeah. i don't know <laughs> uh maybe he's on uh ted nugent's compound as we speak could be i mean yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> uncle uncle ted will work in a deal them. but wango, wango tango research oh god um i don't know we're, we're rolling up on over a half hour here yeah so you want to take five and uh, yeah, we'll kind take of... a break and uh, come back because 
Yeah, we reorganize a little bit. Have a lot that we haven't even touched on. I'm telling you, we could do so two much. episodes I mean, on this. this is this is a big this is a big deal, and we, we've been kind of excited about this. Uh, yeah. So it's like we're you know, trying not to overdo it, um, but still want to get you know give you an opportunity to kind of clear some of this stuff up because again, we Mark and I our Facebook feeds, it's our own doing of course, but it's just like all hunting related material outdoor related material it's all it's almost obnoxious how, how many groups that we're involved in and that we're, we're in so it's you know there's no shortage of uh, comments or questions or things of that nature so that we we're pretty excited that we get an opportunity to speak with someone like yourself to help kind of clear up a lot of the mis misperceptions and misconceptions yeah. did i yeah misinformation yes yeah. yeah misconceptions yeah. so this is a, a pretty good opportunity so we're pretty excited to to have you here to kind of go over some of this stuff with us so we'll uh reorganize uh take yeah. five uh, get some air and then uh come back get and, back at it yeah i want to talk about those spider monkeys communication specialist for CWD for Pennsylvania Game Commission. And uh, where should we pick up? I want to talk about the spider monkeys. All right. <laughs> I, I feel like where people else? are wondering. I mean, if you're going to start anywhere. So just before we even get into them, I think the, the one question that I, wa- I wanted to ask you, so with everything that you've seen and read on CWD at this point, I feel like there's not a piece out there that you've missed. If you shoot a deer this year, are you eating it? Um, I do hunt in a disease management area, so if I harvest a deer, I will get my deer tested. And if it comes back not detected for chronic wasting disease, I am definitely eating my deer. Gotcha. What if it comes back positive? You're not? Me, if it comes back positive, I probably would not take that risk. That's my own personal decision. Right. Um. I get the question a lot while we're already kind of in this area. I I do get the question a lot, you know, is chronic wasting disease dangerous to humans? And the answer, the really honest answer is probably not, but we just really can't guarantee that 100%. So without that 100% guarantee for me, if it comes back positive, I probably wouldn't. I'll get you my address after the. I'm with you. I I wouldn't need it either. Hey man, I like it too much. I I I don't know. I I I I like it too much. But sitting there going, I'm going to throw all that meat away. I also like you know remembering things. I feed my kids. Yeah, I struggle with uh, short-term memory loss sometimes. But that's that's usually due to the numerous concussions. I like my brain holding over the years. I just um, we I mean uh, and I will add to that too the kind of like. Again, chronic poisoning was first found in 1967, and prion diseases were found, I mean, much longer than that. I mean, we do know there are prion diseases that do affect humans or can mm-hmm. jump a species barrier into humans, but to date so far, we haven't found any cases of it in humans. So 
We have a pretty good uh, score so far. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and, and we get people every year, every year who harvest positive deer in the state of Pennsylvania. They know their deer is positive and they choose to consume the meat. And that is their, that's mm-hmm. their choice. So I think um, a lot of times people are expecting us as the game commission to tell them, sh- yes, you can eat it or no, you can't eat it. But that's right. really not up to us really. Sure. What our job is is to present you with the information and yeah. let you make that decision for yourself. But so. it's 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 not out of the realm of possibility that if they ate it last year, that they wouldn't see the effects of something that may or may not have happened for twenty years, right? Like because if you if you think about the way it works in deer, is you tend to see the effects later in in a deer's life cycle. Yeah, that, that incubation period takes at least 18 to 24 months, or on average takes about 18 to 24 months in deer. For humans, um, since it's never been found in humans yet, we wouldn't know what that incubation period is. The incubation period for all TS diseases in different species tend to vary. Um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, for example, in humans, that that is basically the human version, mm-hmm. um, that technically doesn't occur until later in life. Um, but what I will also say with that is that typically is not something that's really transferred from one individual to another. That's typically, it's a genetic. Unfortunately, you have the wrong genetics and you're right. going to develop Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease over time. Boy, right. if I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> My genetics are poor. Poor, poor genetics, Jane. My poor kids. Okay. Not everyone's walking blessed. into walls. <laughs> but, so, so I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's not a wild assumption to think like, all right, if if it happens later in the life of a deer, it could happen. Exactly. It would be it would be a similar. I don't know what would you say like ratio. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I would be I'd and be nervous. Yeah. There are studies going on on that, um, so that people are aware. Um, there are studies that are going on where they are basically tracking the health of individuals who they do know are consuming deer venison on a regular base, basis, whether it's positive or not. Um, and they are tracking their health over time to see is there a correlation between individuals who end up having um, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, those type of things, and also consumed venison on a regular right. basis right. or not. So they are going on. Um, so far, The a lot of the results from the studies are showing there's really not a correlation there. Um but it's going to take time to really right. get the overall replication and then results of those things. So um, just un- for me personally, until it's like 100% guarantee, yeah. there's no way like we're good. We're good getting this. Yeah. I'm just, me personally, I would better be safe than sorry. And right. that's my personal opinion right. on it. <laughs> <clears throat> and I know people are probably like, well, why, why does he keep bringing up spider monkeys? A, they're awesome. Because they're my favorite monkey, that's why. But but B, the study... They're way cooler than monkey spiders. Oh, my God. So the, the study is in the, the proposal plan that I, I'm, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. So first of all, let's, maybe we should... Could you just explain this, this fluid document right now? So um, Pennsylvania Game Commission... Uh, Jared and I and a lot of people, uh, we actually had representatives from other 
state wildlife agencies across the nation. We had representatives from nonprofit organizations such as NDA and QDMA, and we had representatives from local universities, and we all came together, and we created a draft chronic waste and disease response plan for Pennsylvania. Um, it is currently up for public comment, um, and it will be up for public comment until February 29th, 2020. So it is on our webpage. It is 37 pages. A lot of those pages are references. Uh, so maybe actually 30, mm-hmm. 32 pages of reading material, <laughs> I right? That before I was yeah. like, Jay, this, there's like a couple pages of references. So yeah, it's not as long as I Yeah, thought. it's not as long as what you think. I mean, and I tell people all the time when I go to programs and stuff, I'm like, if you read a page a day, you'll be done by Christmas. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's not that advanced either. It's, it's not like an intimidating document to read. No, no, either, it's not. From I mean, what I, I read of it. Okay, I printed out two copies. I brought one up for you when uh, you had your Halloween party. And then I Is kept that where one this came my, from? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> um, yeah, I left it on the counter next to your super cool pumpkin. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, so I had one for you, one for me, so we can kind of, again, we wanted to get it, do our homework a little bit so we didn't sound like, you know, terribly blithering idiots. Um, but, you know. <laughs> Were you insulted when I asked you if you had read it yet? Because I had no oh, idea no. where this document came from. It was just on, I just, yeah, yeah. it was no, in my no, office right. the other day, and I was like, the Halloween oh. party, you know, we're not going like to get too deep into that. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely like, Courtney's coming to talk to us, and this just appeared <laughs> this on my just desk. Here. I was like, hmm. somebody, I was like, somebody dropped this off for me. Yeah, well, no, there was a lot going on that night, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah right. I guess. Moving um, on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, before I, d- I derailed us there. So, no, that's, that's right. It's so, the, to the club. The, the one thing that, caught my attention very early in the document since I didn't get all the way through it was that there was a study where spider monkeys were pretty much contracted CWD. So they found that it was able to jump that barrier. Correct? Yeah. So, um, the one thing about studies, okay, that we should go into the a lot of times, uh, a lot of these initial studies that are trying to just figure out if a species can be contracted with something is it's not often under natural circumstances. Uh, so, for instance, a lot of these studies, they may be injecting CWD infectious material directly into the brain at very high well, doses. It's going to suck for the monkey. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, this is this study isn't going the way I pictured it. <laughs> go ahead. But no, I'm just saying like a lot of times it's not not necessarily what would consider would happen on a natural very realistic n- a very real right. yes it's in a lab setting and, and the the goal of it is really to see is it possible right because right. once they figure out if it is possible then they can start kind of reeling it back to you know is it reasonable that it's actually going to happen type right. of thing so um yes spider monkeys have been found that they can um become infected with chronic wasting disease um, there is a, another study that is currently, it is ongoing, and it is from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They released preliminary results probably two years ago at this point in time, and it was at a conference, so um, they were just providing people with updates on where they were at with the study. Now, in that study, the goal of it is actually to mimic what a human would naturally eat of venison on a yearly basis. So they are feeding macaques um, infected meat and brains from 
animals. And from the preliminary results of that study, they did find that some of their macaques became infected. So that study has not been published. It has not been peer-reviewed. It's still in the early stages of it. Um, So we can't really use that as a basis, but it definitely is concerning. The fact that chronic waste disease can be can infect spider monkeys and it can infect macaques, it can infect non-human primates, mm-hmm. raises some concerns. With that being said, at the same time, um, the genetic makeup of spider monkeys seems to be more closely related to deer than what it does, like it leans more towards right. the deer side than what macaques do. Macaques are much more closely related genetically to humans. Right. So, and since it seems that it might be a little bit harder to infect them, it may suggest that there is a species barrier there. Right. So we really won't know until much more research is done. And kind of like we were saying earlier, the way studies build credibility is for it to be right. replicated many times. Yeah. So... While I know a lot of people are really waiting and they really want us to just be able to answer the question, yes or no, and give them that solid answer, it's probably going to be years before we can actually give you that solid answer. I'm already going to have sponge brain by then. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But either way, I mean, I that's more how I pictured the study going, like somebody like frying up like a nice steak and be like, here you go, monkey. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that sounds nicer than injecting their brains injected in their brain I, I don't know for that one for sure but well, listen, i do you know said that it, for, it's on it's in the internet and it's forever yeah out. it's forever it's <laughs> oh i can't ever take it back yeah it, i mean i right i do know i have read studies before where that yeah. is often the method that they they use to try and infect animals with okay. things so that's probably See, i mean just just that little bit did it for me where i said if i ever had a positive piece there's no way i mean it no, hmm. not not the, side for me. Not mean, the same for you though. <laughs> no, you eat. I'm it. still. I I still eat it. I still eat it. I uh, think the other. You know, I say that now. Put it in front of me, and then see. we'll see. Yeah, I was to say. I, I think mean? the I don't other thing. I want to be like Mr. You know, gung ho. I'll eat it, and then you put it for me. I go. Mm, no, nah, I changed my mind. I think the Wuss. thing that makes me yeah, more. I might. Weary, and, and again, this is my own personal opinion. I guess just to say, it's not like the opinion of the game commission is. Mm-hmm. My own personal opinion about it is when mad cow disease originally was first found in Europe, we didn't believe that it could infect humans. Mm -hmm. And then we later found that it could infect humans. And so right now we're at the stage where we don't believe really that chronic wasting disease can infect humans, but we're not 100% sure. Right. And that's that's one of the part of the reasons too is because we're kind of in the same situation where we were with mad cow disease right. where it didn't really seem like it was possible, but then later on we found out that it was. And it, and I right. will say the the instance with mad cow disease was kind of a odd situation how it came about, but it, it it's kind of like there were like over two hundred people who became infected. So. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, as to why they got infected, there's regulations now on things that you can't do. Like right, right. Feeding, with the bone meal and yeah, all the stuff the bone meal and, and, yeah. and things like that. So, um, I mean, again, like I said, I don't want to scare people. I really don't want to scare people. I just want to make sure that people are making their own informed decision based off of the information that's out there. Because I don't want to tell you don't do it just because I said. Right, know, right. But um, I would just say. Err on the side of caution if you're yeah. worried about it. Absolutely. 
There's your Mr. Rogers tip of the day, man. Just uh, don't don't uh, you know make your decisions based on emotion or uh, your crazy neighbor. Just uh, take the science, digest it, and then make a decision. You know, it's simple, people. <laughs> so, a- another question that was actually posed on one of the posts that I put up in uh, the Pennsylvania group was they they. Somebody was curious as to using bleach and how effective bleach is at disinfecting equipment. So there was just a recent study that came out that shows or reports that if you you can use um, a 40% dilution of bleach. This is not your household bleach, okay, but bleach and uh, that would be a, a mix, basically. When I say 40% dilution, what I'm talking about is it would be 40 parts bleach to 60 parts water, mm-hmm. okay, that combination. Um, you can actually use that now to clean. Um, they found it can use to disinfect and clean uh, steel, basically. Mm-hmm. So your knives in, in those type of equipments, they were found that it can Grinder actually parts, you know, yes, like disinfect yeah. basically Restaurant the prions on those tools and services, which is great because for um, hunters and individuals who are harvesting deer and they want to properly clean their tools afterwards before, uh, our recommendation was to uh, place your tools and equipment, if you could, you to soak it in a 50-50 bleach water solution for 30 minutes to an hour. Now they're saying that you can do 40 uh, bleach to 60 parts water for five minutes and it should be able to disinfect those tools. Now, of hmm. course, this is just the first study that really has come out like that. We'll need more, um, but it's a great step in the right direction. Right. Um, and I mean, to be able to do that for five minutes versus, you know, soaking tools for an hour is yeah. a, a lot quicker. Um, the one thing though that should be noted about that study is that it was not found to disinfect or lower the infectivity of um, the prions that would be in like chunks of meat or anything like that that would still be on mm-hmm. those knives and stuff. So you have to first actually wipe down the tools first and actually remove any of the remaining um, parts and then soak them right. in the solution. Yeah. So it's like that makes sense though. I mean. You know, it's not going to penetrate through the matter. <clears throat> You're going to have to get that off there because you can soak it all down, so, so have like, a piece of meat chunked on there, you clean it all off, and then you dry it like, oh, there's a little chunk of dried, pop it off, and yeah. there you go. The prions are right there right. underneath that piece, you know? So bleach marinade isn't going to be no, a thing. No, I was thinking like fireman helicopter with bleaching water, just flying around PA, dumping it all over deer. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to work either. I'm sure the EPA would love that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. They'll take care of those uh, <coughs> autumn leaf peepers, yeah. bleach all the color out of the leaves. So, yeah, I mean, that, I think that, that actually kind of wraps up the questions from the internet. Yeah. That, that, or the, Our the good old buddy, the Facebook groups. Yeah. No, the they, they, I was surprised. I mean, we, we did get some interesting stuff. I had to keep yeah. reading them, but. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just how it goes on there. It's a scary place. Well, on the, the the topic of kind of like spreading it and stuff like that is a big thing. Um, I, I did a little bit of research and read a couple of really cool articles on it in regard to scavengers and how they, uh, you know, are perceived to spread the the matter or the, you know, whether it be 
like the prions are what collect in the soil and in the plants and in the matter. So when the deer spreads it through urine, feces, or saliva, it's the actual prions that are in the saliva. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So if that gets consumed by a coyote, a crow, and they fly two counties over and you know crap on the cornfield, and now that deer eats the corn from the so that, and that that can be a, a big concern in regard to how we combat that and how we track how it's transmitted and stuff like that. So the one thing that I will say is I, whenever I go to programs and I talk to people a lot, the moment that they hear often that uh, scavengers, uh, avian scavengers or, or coyotes or something can actually ingest the infectious prions and defecate them, um, a lot of people jump to, really, what is the point in even trying to control chronic wasting disease mm. when we have scavengers that can be transporting it, you know, miles? But the thing that I don't think is often really considered is the potential risk in comparison to other things. So a scavenger or, um, you know, a bird or, or anything that is consuming an animal who may be infected with chronic wasting disease, again, they're going to have to actually be eating the parts that are infected with the prions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in all reality, prions can be found pretty much anywhere in the body. It's just they concentrate in the highest amounts in the central nervous system. Okay. So um, they would have to also be eating the parts that probably have the highest concentrations. Um, and then for them to travel to another area and then defecate Let's really think about the amount an animal defecates, a coyote or, you know, a bird of some mm-hmm. type. What's the actual amount that's going to be placed on the ground somewhere? And then in addition, what is the probability of a deer actually coming in contact with that exact right. spot? Um, that's going to be a much lower risk and a much lower probability than somebody transporting high-risk parts in the back of their truck and dumping them on the landscape. Right. So, yes, um, could scavengers potentially contribute to the spread of chronic wasting disease? Yes, but they're going to do so at a much, much, much lower rate than some of the human-related activities that we are doing. Um, So I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter. Um, Anytime you are transporting high-risk parts, um, you are increasing the risk of spreading chronic wasting disease. Um, so that's whether it is in um, a carcass after you've um, had a successful harvest and you're transporting it across the state, or whether it is a live animal in the back of a truck going from one place to another. Um, we are increasing the risk that we are going to spread chronic wasting disease. Um, so in reality, if we really want to start slowing the spread of this disease, we need to start limiting the movement of those parts. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, like I mean, yeah, I and I've read a couple of really cool articles uh, on it, and it was you know I read two or three, and I, sh- I should have wrote down the uh, the articles I read, and you know one was like ah don't worry about it, it's fine, nothing's gonna be, it's not that big a deal, kind of like as you alluded yeah. to, and others were like well it could live in their bowels for three days, and they're gonna and they kind of really made a more of like a mountain out of a molehill when it comes to it, like it can like last, like it got into really how long they could carry it for and. It just it got it was more. I have seen a study that really went that deep into it. So it really wasn't a study. That was more of an article in regard to um, the concern of scavengers or coyotes or you know how long can it survive in the 
digestive tract of an animal. So it's not like they would have to like eat it and defecate that same day in order to pass it. It could be <coughs> several days before they, uh, and it would still be a viable uh, method of transmission after several days in the tract of an animal. So it's kind of like, uh, even as I was reading it, I was going, mm. it seems like there, it's more of like a, Scary ooh article. Yeah, than, and I don't. I and I can't really uh, speak on that because, like I said, I've never seen an article that's really um, talked about that directly. But I have to see if I can my, track it down because I was reading it just. Yeah, just my initial recently. thought would be that the infectious prions, when they enter the body, it would be about the same amount of infectious prions leaving the body. So mm-hmm. it's. I don't really feel like it would necessarily build. Right. But yeah. I, I. I can't. I can't really. Yeah, I don't know necessarily they were saying it was building, but it was going to, it was like, so when you, you you eat a grape, it doesn't come out as a grape, right? So like they're saying that it can survive that process, the digestive process and not be destroyed. Yes, it can survive. We do know that. Right. We know that it can come out the other end. It's still infectious. Um, we know that much. Right. Um, but we haven't had any studies so far that actually show the extent that once it does basically come out the other end and it's in the environment we have not had a case yet where that's actually to what we know actually been able to infect a deer so with that being said we really don't know what the infectious dose of a prion is for deer it could be exposure to one prion it could be exposure to a hundred thousand prions most likely it means there's going to be a higher risk of becoming infected with a higher exposure with more prions do I really believe that deer can be con- infected with one prion? No, probably not. It probably takes a certain amount for them to actually become right. infected. Right. But we just don't know yet. Um, so with that being said, would there be enough prions actually in feces from a coyote or from a buzzard to infect a deer? We right. don't know that yet. That study hasn't been done. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you also like, when is a deer going to eat coyote feces? Right. Or and something it, like that. It would be more happenstance yeah. that it was eating the ferns around the coyote. Yeah. Or something or, like that. And that's they, the other thing, too. Uh, so we do have studies that show that the prions, when they're in the soil, can be absorbed by the roots and they can be taken up into the roots of plants. We have also seen that if you basically yeah. expose the leaves... Um, basically like almost like a, like if saliva would be put on a leaf or something like that, mm-hmm. um, that, that those prions can remain infectious on those leaves. However, again, we don't have the study that, that shows that then if a deer consumes that plant, does it become infected? So we don't have that yet. Oh, wow. Okay. So I can see that being troublesome. So even urine as well, right? Mm-hmm. So if, and I, 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 I don't want to put ideas in anyone's head, but I mean, you think about like <laughs> like a a 30-yard by 20-yard food plot. Mm-hmm. They've got deer just hanging out in all the time, urinating, mm-hmm. sure. salivating all over it. You kind of would assume that that's kind of like a hotbed then in in an area. Like that's that. I, I know it's funny because I was thinking the exact same thing about food plots. And like, for instance, uh, the, 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 um, the blocks people put out or the like the um, – mineral licks and stuff yeah. like that, how that could potentially be uh, a, an issue. Um, but, I mean, look at uh, acorn flats, you know, where yeah. a high congregation of deer come into an acorn flat, uh, you know, or 
um, the yards, like deer yards. If you know, a deer yard is like kind of where deer will congregate. Um, How about drinking holes? Are there drinking holes? Right. You know what I mean. Uh, there's a number of things. Uh, you know, uh, one of the the big misconception I see is with over the deer the deer urine. So store bought deer urine. Mm-hmm. Okay, and people are like, oh well, you know, they, don't they test that stuff before it leaves the farm? I'm like, I don't think you're getting it. It's not so much that the concern is that it's in that deer urine. It's that it's causing deer to congregate. So right. that scent of that urine is causing deer to all go to the same place. And I think therein lies the issue that they're trying to avoid by saying, listen, these you know, uh, disease management areas, you can't use deer urine you know, because it's not so much they're worried about it being in the deer urine. It's more of the congregation aspect. I would say that um, it's – there's multiple concerns with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I get a lot of people who say, well, if I just put two drops of deer urine on a tree, that's really not going to congregate deer. And I think they're thinking of us talking about massive numbers of deer. Mm-hmm. No, but what in reality, what we're really talking about is you're attracting, even if it's just one deer, you're attracting them to that spot. Yeah. And how many times have you seen a deer really investigate, rub up against a tree or, or, you know, those type of things. So they could be coming in direct contact with that. And again, if we don't know what the infectious dose is, it could be a potential cause of the spread of the disease. Mm -hmm. And in, in addition to that, with us not knowing what the infectious dose is, we don't know if the couple drops really could infect a deer or not. In all reality, it's probably very low chance that a couple drops of deer urine can infect. Um, but until we know, again, another thing, until we know for 100%, we would just rather be better be safe than sorry. Right. Because now my mind immediately goes towards, like, mock scrapes. Because I'm, right, I'm trying to right, think right. of, like, ways that we could possibly be guilty in <laughs> contributing <laughs> sure. to the spread of this. Like, no, absolutely. Like, yeah. last year, I, I didn't put out minerals. I stopped putting out minerals. Yeah, I didn't put any out this year. I had some out last year, but I, I didn't put them out this year. And it's more of a, you know, there's a couple reasons for that. Not just because I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to cause a, a massive outbreak of CWD. Yeah, it's, it's, part, it, it's part of the, the reasoning to it. But, you know, there's several reasons why I didn't. But I'm... I'm 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 kind of less inclined to pursue that type of activity now, just because yeah. if it's a slight the slightest chance, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I'll just lean back. We talk all the time about how important woodsmanship is in what we do. Um, so I, I'm gonna have to kind of lean back on some of the the lessons I learned. Yeah, over the years in the woods pursuing deer, pursuing like, turkey or whatever. And if I, if I, you know, granted mock scrapes are a great way to get trail camera photos. It's yeah. a great way to draw deer into a specific area that you like to hunt. We've talked about climbing tree stands. For yeah. Instance. That's, that's like my thing. On a mock no, I know it is. Um, but you know, you, you get into an area you want to hunt, but you have a climbing tree stand. Well, where the deer are traveling, there's no good trees for that. So what do you do? You make a mock scrape about 10, 15 yards mm-hmm. into an area where you've got a good tree to hang a climber. So, I mean, it, it's definitely an advantage uh, when you're trying to, you know, be successful in a harvest. But it's like I, I, I've got other tricks up my sleeve. Right. You know what I mean? I don't have to really rely on the drags, the, the well, the blocks. You can't hunt over them anyway. That's considered big, right. you know, the, the, the licks and stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's just a personal preference of mine now. Because of how, um, you know, realistic the threat is, I'm just like, all right, well, I'm, I'm just going to skip that now, and I'm going to move on to a whole different tactic. And, right. and honestly, that keeps it a little bit exciting for me. Yeah. Because now i got to change up my routine a little bit and, uh, 
helps keep it kind of fresh. You it's know? like Mother Nature's way of bringing back traditional hunting. Yeah, telling you to get off your ass and quit being so lazy. <laughs> yeah, which, which also... Uh, then I'm calling you lazy, people. I know how this is going to go already. Yeah, don't twist his words. Yeah. Come on now. We've been doing this a while now. <laughs> one, uh, one thing that my, my dad actually said to me, he said, don't you kind of think that CWD could just be the, a natural way of thinning deer? Like it could be just be, you know, running its course. There, there's, there could be a reason for it if, if you're going that all natural route. And, and for a second I was like, yeah, I could, I could see that. I, I understand that. But You're then right. I think it's a little smarter than you give him credit for sometimes, I think. <laughs> I, I give him credit but when, I, I, when I, it's I due. see the, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely made me think for a second. Like, all right, well, maybe, you know, it is Mother Nature trying to run its course and do its thing. But I, I think it was one of the first paragraphs of the, the proposal plan that kind of made me think, oh, okay, with all the research that we have of what it has done in the past – it's kind of our responsibility. Is it wasn't was that the the title of the one the one article? It was something about responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember responsibility. Exactly what it was, yeah, but, um, yeah, I believe we have a section in there on our own agency responsibility. I right. mean, we are actually basically mandated that to try and do our best to protect and manage Pennsylvania's wildlife. Wildlife. So, for us. It is mandated to us, but we also, and, and this is something, um, again, Jared, who's our management coordinator, talked about, we also wanted to add, again, a stakeholder responsibility in there. Um, very often, uh, we often forget to talk about the responsibility of the general public to manage wildlife and the natural resources in our state. A lot of times we do put those directly on just the state agencies and, you know, they're responsible for the rise or fall of what happens with our wildlife. Um, but in reality, a lot of our stakeholders have a say and you have a responsibility to, to help. Right. Um, and you can do something to help. So we wanted to put something in there to address the fact that this isn't just the Game Commission's responsibility. This is really our stakeholders, this is everybody's responsibility in the state to try and help, you know, protect Pennsylvania's wildlife. Yeah. And that's, uh, there was something I, I saw posted in that group. It was either today or yesterday about, it, it was a really good post because it was like just one sentence. And I think the way the guy said it was the game commission is here for the wildlife, not for the hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and yeah, I, the and hunter I mean, is a tool. And I, I, I don't know what made him say that. It, it just kind of came out of nowhere. But, I mean, it's true, and I don't think people realize that. And it was The comment was something like I – it was one of the gentlemen who had been to a CWD yes. discussion group, like yeah. a seminar. Like I've seen uh, some of the – you know, the PGC does it. Um, and he was at one, and he was like, I went to one, and it was really good. I learned a lot. Y'all should consider maybe, a, you know, attending one. <laughs> And and then of course the onslaught of crazy uh, poured out all over that post. But there was a couple of people in there that, like you said, you know, they're like, listen, you know, we're a tool for, and we've said it ourselves yeah. numerous times that we are tools for the game commission. Man, that it really is. I mean, we, and that is when I mean hunting. That's that's really what 
um, hunting is. It is a management tool. Indeed. It's a management tool so that we can better manage wildlife in the state. And um, how fortunate are we that we get to participate in that management? Right. So, and, and, and I shouldn't even say how fortunate are we that we get to participate. In, in all reality, I mean, the game commission may not be successful at managing wildlife without hunting. Right. So it's it's kind of like a symbiosis there. Um, we almost really truly need each other. Indeed. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I mean, listen, you know, I I'm not going to agree 100 percent of the time with what the you know the game commission uh, comes out with with without some of their their thoughts. And but it's not my job to uh, dictate how you guys behave. And I mean, I it, we're we're pretty open minded, Mark and I, when we approach a lot of this stuff. There's times where you would have something like, okay, this is just the dumbest idea, but we'll look into it and go, you know what, maybe it's not so dumb. Right. You know, if you take a minute to kind of thumb through it a little bit, it's gonna it's gonna become more evident what the uh, you know, what the end game is truly what they're trying to do. So I mean, we just have the, the laws are there for a reason. You know, we said that a hundred times. If it was just the Wild West, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about this because everything'd be pretty much gone by now. You know what I mean? So say, we we used to have the Wild West and how many species did we almost run to extinction by having the Wild West? So right. I know it's not fun having regulations. A lot of mm -hmm. times I know it's fun. And and ultimately a big part of the Game Commission is to be regulators of fun, if you really think about it. Yeah. Uh, but somebody has to do it. it. Because if not, we've seen in the past what happens if uh, everybody can just have a free-for-all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and on that note, I mean, you know, we did have that free-for-all, and the animals that bounced back did so because of the regulations and the hunters mm -hmm. and the programs that were put forth by Nat, the, the Fish and Game and, and all these, you know, these entities that have put these things together and brought these animals back. And it they were brought back by, which is such a hard thing for some people to wrap their heads around, that the people who are out there killing these animals are the reasons why they're still here. You know what I mean? It's a very um, counterintuitive uh, thought, you know, for a lot of people to wrap their head around. It's just like, how can, you know, that whole, we go back to that, how can you love an animal that you, you're out there to kill? Right. It's a difficult thing to explain. I mean, it's a difficult thing for people to wrap their heads around. But, you know, with the way I've grown up hunting, you know, so the North American model of wildlife conservation was back in, what, the 30s or something like that? I can't remember the exact year, but it was you know, early... 1900s when they put that together so that was before all of our time so we've come up in our hunting career if you even that's even the right way to say it um with the understanding of these regulations creating the challenges that they create which is what we're drawn to we're drawn to hunting we're not drawn to killing we're drawn to hunting. We're drawn to the pursuit. We're drawn to the challenge, uh, to the adventure, that type of thing. And all those things exist because of the regulations that are put forth within the best interest of the whatever game we're trying to pursue. So I think it plays a big role into how we see hunting as it is today. And, and it's those regulations and stuff like that. So for as much as it can suck sometimes to... You know, some, place, some places get X amount of doe tags. And this county, you know, this unit gets... 10 times as many doe tags it's like it almost perceived as it seems unfair you know what i mean but it's it's for a reason it's not just because your wildlife management unit is 
a bunch of losers, so you're only going to get <laughs> 3,000 dough tags, sucker. We're going to get 15,000 over here because right. we're just way cooler. That's, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that is There may be some potential there. I don't know. Um, but it the, might the, be something we can consider. Maybe. <laughs> it, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, the, the, for the way we perceive hunting and the way we perceive this whole lifestyle has, has been molded by a lot of the regulations that have been, you know, and they're constantly changing. I mean, it's not like they're like, this is it. Good luck. Let's see how this works out. I mean, every year they, you know, examine a lot of the legislation or a lot of the regulations they pass. They examine them. If they work, maybe they'll keep them or maybe increase them or decrease them. It's always, it's a breathing thing. It's always constantly moving and adjusting. And that's how we can serve, you know, uh, these animals uh, successfully. Because we're not stuck in one rut. We don't just leave the rule as it is. It's not just this is it. It's like, okay, this is how we did it last year. Didn't work out so well, so we're going to make an adjustment. Or it worked great, so how can we improve on it a little bit to make it work better this year? And I think a lot of people look at that as a negative, And they, they look at that as uh, a hindrance. Um, I guess it's all in perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, perception to how you perceive this to be is, is going to determine, you know, how you interact with the game commission or, you know, somebody who puts up a, a, an innocent post on a guy who went to one of these CWD things and decided, hey, you guys should check it out, and he just gets hammered by a bunch of crackpots, you know what I mean, a bunch of fuds. Um, it's uh, I could see how it could be extremely challenging for you guys to maintain you know, uh, a decent public image, uh, if you will, when you're kind of a... a, a perceived to be going against the grain a little bit with, you know, what the public opinion is, you know, so, uh, so I got, I give you guys a lot of credit for sticking with it and not really cave into a lot of the public opinion out there. Cause if you went with the majority, the way I see it, the way we see it, yeah. it'd be a bad day. That's actually <laughs> why. So part of the thing that we're doing right now is we are doing, um, surveys to see what is the public basic opinion and support for a lot of these actions that we do have in the draft response plan. We are also taking public comment. I can tell you something that I have noticed so far um, through the public comments that we've got back and also through some of the surveys that we've gotten back so far is that there's a lot more support than what we think there is out there. And I think part of the reason for that is often the people who are the most unhappy are the loudest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Often on social media or things like that, you're going to see more of the unhappy individuals, the people who are not okay with something or they have something to uh, really complain or they want to see something change. You're going to hear that a lot more than the people who are actually comfortable with something or support something. Um, how many times, uh, just for instance, have you ever gone to a restaurant or gone somewhere and 90% of the times you go there, everything is great, you have good service, it's good food, and then there's one time that you show up and it's not right. what you want. Maybe the food's undercooked or, or something's just not right. The service was bad for some reason, more so than usual. How often, whenever you would leave that place prior, would you go home and tell people how amazing the service was versus how many people would you then come back to later and tell them about that one bad instance that you had? 
So we often have a tendency to speak more when we are frustrated or upset with something than right. when we are actually comfortable or supportive of something. Um, so just from what I have seen so far, um, I do think we have a lot more support out there than what we often see on social media. I could see that, yeah, because I mean, you know, you're, you're subject to public ridicule too on social media. So if like you get a bunch a of bit. negative comments, and I just go and say, well, no, you guys need to relax a little bit. This is this this might work out. You're going to get hammered. You're going to get lambasted, and we see it all the time. Yeah. you know what I mean. And there's no there's really no rhyme or reason to it. A lot of people are just nonsensical. They just want to, you know, tell you how dumb your dog is, or you know how call you know, me Post Malone. Yeah, Post Malone. <laughs> but. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that's that, that. For the record, you don't look anything like Post Malone. I know I don't, Jay. Tattoos, I know I don't. pre-tattoos doesn't make any difference. <laughs> um, I have a couple things that I think we need to touch on. We we are doing okay. We got a good time. Um, one thing that Jay mentioned was how you know the regs are constantly changing mm-hmm. based on what's happening right now. So I think right now is you know. An extreme case. So obviously we're going to see things change a little bit more. And I know that in the proposal there's some changes that some people aren't happy about, I guess. But can you talk? Can you speak on some of those and how you guys decided that this is what needs to happen now? Because I think some of it was like len- lengthening seasons and possible the, the antler yeah, restriction, restriction yeah, going like away. And yeah, that's a good question. So I think – one thing that should kind of um, be brought up is that both um, Jared and I, we are fairly new to the Game Commission. So we came in, both of us, about a year, a year and a half ago. Um, so bringing in new staff also brings in a lot of times new thinking right. on things. Um, with that also being said, um, in time frame and from what Jared and I both have discovered through looking at research, um, from talking to people from other states, from talking to um, representatives from other states, um, I mean, we're not trying to recreate the wheel here. We're, there's a lot of states that have had chronic wasting disease for a lot longer than we have. So it really benefits us And it makes sense for us to reach out to them and contact them and say, hey, what have you been doing in your state and what has been working and what hasn't been working? And what would your recommendations be for Pennsylvania? Um, So that's what we started doing. Uh, We've been reaching out. And, for example, for the draft response plan, um, we did create an initial draft first. Um, Jared and I and um, some of our deer biologists and stuff, we created a draft first. And what we thought was going to be best for Pennsylvania. And then we had a lot of these other states review it. We had nonprofit organizations. We had universities review it who are working on studies on chronic wasting disease. And we all convened together in large meetings in a room. And we, I would like to say we discussed it. We did discuss it, but in some instances we debated it. Right. So this is not something that we came to very easily. This is something that took time to create. This is something that we've discussed with many people, and this is basically what, from that group, we believe is the best actions moving forward. And a lot of that does come from actually listening to the public, too. Right. Um, So 
2017 and 2018, the Game Commission, and this is also prior to before Jared and I were here uh, with the Game Commission, but we did actually conduct three targeted removals in the state in response to chronic wasting disease cases that were found. Um, a lot of this did come back with a lot of public pushback. And one of the things that we commonly see when we talk to people or what we hear from people who were around those target removals who have heard about them is that they wanted the first opportunity. They wanted to be the ones to help control chronic mm -hmm. wasting yeah. disease in the state. Now, I can tell you from experiences I have seen in other states, from stories we know, there has been no state that has any success in controlling chronic wasting disease with hunters alone. Right. That doesn't mean it's not possible in Pennsylvania. I feel like Pennsylvania hunters are very determined mm -hmm. when they want to be, and I'm not saying you that think? it can't. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not saying that it can't happen here. I'm just saying it hasn't happened in any other state. Right. So throwing the con the entire idea of target removals out the window. It's it's not necessarily there yet unless it's I mean a hundred percent not something that's supported you know right. I mean it, we still want to leave it on the table as almost like a last resort option but what we were really trying to do in this draft response plan is provide our hunters with the opportunity to be the first line of defense against chronic wasting disease so how do we do that well. We need to break down barriers that limit our hunters from the ability to harvest deer. Um, so some of the things we're proposing is increased antlerless tags. Now, one of the things we have seen is we do have a lot of DMAP tags already currently out there. We have a lot of antlerless deer tags out there, and all of them are not being sold. And in addition to that, all of them are not being filled. Filled, yeah. And, and we're seeing there is a, a usually about a certain amount that are actually filled each year. So... We may have already reached our saturation point with that where this is the amount of tags we're going to be able to right. sell. Um, and this is the amount that um, of hunters who are going to be willing are actually going to be capable of filling those tags. Uh, but with that being said, it's still on the table. We can in increase tag allocations around known positive. We can extend or create concurrent seasons again in areas around known positives. And we are also talking about removing antler point restrictions around known positives. And when I say around known positives, um, if you actually look into the draft response plan, we're talking about a three mile radius around each positive that has ever been detected in the state that also includes captives um, and wild deer that have tested positive and um, so a three-mile radius. So mm -hmm. these options that we were proposing, we were proposing them in these three-mile radiuses around positives, not the entire, excuse me, not the entire disease management area and not the entire state, okay. just in these three-mile right. radiuses. Okay. So how do you <coughs> determine a, a, like a, a disease management area? Like what... All right, so, like, I'm sure there's a couple of variables and, you know, <coughs> different criteria. But, like, so if you say, okay, we found a CWD positive deer at position X, how does that – what determines that disease management area? So we make our disease man management areas. We actually create a buffer zone that is a 10-mile uh, radius buffer. So 10 miles around that positive. Okay. Now, where do we get that 10 miles is the question. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. That actually comes from 
data that we've seen from the movement of deer in the state of Pennsylvania. So we picked the 10 mile radius because we know that most deer, not all, there are deer that go out of that 10 mile radius, but most deer in a year don't travel outside of that 10 mile radius. Okay. So if a deer would show up positive, in the center, obviously at the 10 mile radius, we are estimating that there's a good probability that they haven't traveled outside of that area. So the disease management area is really trying to encompass anywhere where that deer may have traveled in the past year. Mm -hmm. um, since these prions can be shed in the saliva, urine, and feces, we also wanna make sure we're catching any areas that may be also have infected the environment as well. Um, so that's really where that 10 mile buffer comes along. I, I um, often answer questions from people and they're like, well, I live on the border of the disease management area and I watch deer cross that border all the time. Obviously we can't do anything about deer naturally crossing the border. I mean, technically I guess we could if we wanted to build a wall or if we wanted to set up sharpshooters right along that border. And I mean, right. if he crosses that line, you yeah. take him out, you know? Cross that line. <laughs> yeah, you know, we really I can't do anything about you. what deer do naturally. All we can do is try and control what us as humans do to uh, contribute to the spread of the disease. Mm -hmm. But um, I also get people say, well, how do you know that the deer that's crossing this border isn't, you know, positive? You know, how can you say that that area is positive and this area isn't? Um, the important thing to remember is it's a buffer zone. So near the center of that buffer zone is really what's going to be the more likelihood of being infected and positive. So we actually have naturally created a buffer within that. Um, so the areas on the outside of our disease management areas closer to the edge are going to have a lower probability okay. of being right. positive. We we put that buffer in already. Okay, that's I could see how that that could that could also have its challenges, but that's uh, that's interesting to know because I mean you hear, you know, the DMAPs like the disease management area permits okay so where how does that get determined so like the, the disease management areas i was like i heard the term but i never really knew how you said okay well, this is this is the dma right here this is it how does it get to that you know what i mean so that's pretty that's that's it. so 10 miles okay and that makes sense i mean so you would be different here so then say like nevada because uh, the deer migrate in much larger areas in like out western states or something, I imagine that would probably be more like a, I don't know for sure, but like a 20 mile radius or something because of the way they migrate and stuff like that with mule deer and all that stuff. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely variances if you look from one state to another. And obviously every state doesn't call them disease management areas. But um, just something that I have noticed this past year, actually, um, Missouri, their disease management areas, I can't remember what exactly they call them. But their versions of our disease management areas used to be 25 miles. Wow. And then after they had did some more research in their state, um, they have actually now, um, they're following a similar buffer zone as what we are, the 10 miles. Right. Um, so there's a lot of states that do go off that 10 mile. Mm -hmm. um, but I think kind of like we we're talking about that things do change. And I know that can be frustrating when things change, but science, we are constantly learning new things. So instead of us just, you know, almost being too prideful and saying, you know, we've been doing this for a while and people are used to this, so we're just going to stick with it because we don't want to change it. Um, when we do learn something new and we knew it would be more beneficial to do something a certain way, then we're going to want to make that change. Um, so just like Missouri kind of did, they learned that, 
you know, they didn't really need this 25-mile buffer. And they've, because of the data they've collected right. and what they've seen, they've actually reduced that. And they actually have reduced the size of their disease management areas for that. And they've sure. reduced I it mean, down. So, yeah. you know, less, that less scary is... scary on a map. Yeah. yeah. That is, I mean, so that's just something to keep in mind. A lot of times when we do make changes, it's because we've seen data or we have something that we want right. to adjust for. So, and with chronic wastelessness, we're learning new things all the time. So right. we will probably be making adjustments for a while. Right, right. Yeah, so so those, the, the studies that have determined deer, uh, like traveling, are, are those just like uh, telemetry studies? Like or, or what, what exactly is defining, like is it just radio collaring deer and? Yeah, a lot of them do um, radio collar deer. So we actually have um, a study right now that is going on in the state of Pennsylvania with the Game Commission where we are radio collaring deer. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a movement and a survival study. And we're looking at them specifically within the disease management areas. Um, so we are trying to also pick up on is there a difference in survival rates um, that we're seeing um, with positive versus, you know, not detected deer. Um, one of the things that um, we're also looking at there is really how far are these deer traveling on a regular basis. So we already have a general idea of that, but um, we can look at the difference between uh, males versus females, different age classes, things like that, and try and come up uh, with an idea of how different age classes or sexes and things can contribute to the spread of the disease. So um, kind of like we were talking before, we are seeing that a lot of our adult bucks have a higher probability of being positive. Um, studies like this are what are really aiming at trying to answer right. those questions. Is why is that? Yeah. yeah. So um, we have some initial data on, on that type of stuff, but really diving into that and um, looking at the transmission and the spread of the disease. Gotcha. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well... I've got just about everything crossed off my list. What do you got? You got I anything? think I got I got one more that is uh, kind of a, a question, and then kind of is followed by a statement because I'm just chock full of those lately. Yeah, another statement. <laughs> I'm good at that every once in a while. Most of the time, I just full of shit. Um, as far as like a lot of the research that you were talking about, like I don't know if I, I I know we talked about it kind of briefly, but I wasn't remember. I don't remember if it was first part or if we're like upstairs talking again that I blur lines a lot uh it's like the the financing for a lot of the research uh on cwd so with um pennsylvania gain commission not really doing a lot of the research doing some of it but like not doing most of it like where does the financing come for from for a lot of the research is it from universities or like what's the primary source of the if you, if you can even speak on that i don't know um, so I can talk about where really the funding comes from managing chronic wasting disease in the state. Okay. Um, so for managing chronic wasting disease through the Game Commission, a lot of that funding comes from Pittman-Robinson funds. Okay. Um, and then also it comes out of our general game fund. So the general game fund is basically the collection of all the revenues that the Game Commission, game commission makes in a year. We stick it in one big fund um, and we pull from that. Um, so that's where really our management side comes from now for research um, for universities and stuff a lot of the research that is going to be coming out is going to become from you know tenure professors people like that um, but a lot of these are coming from grants so 
um, whether you're a tenure professor or whether you are a PhD candidate who's trying to learn more about chronic wastes, a lot of this stuff is coming from state and federal grants um, that are put out there um, from different organizations, different agencies. Um, so just recently, I'm trying to think of who it was, the CWD Alliance, I believe it was. So that is supported by like the Boone and Crockett Club, um, you know, a, a, a couple of different, or I think the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is mm -hmm. part of the CWD Alliance. There's a whole bunch of great organizations on there. Um, I believe they had just put out um, a, I think it was like $100,000 or something for research. Um, so organizations themselves, like that nonprofit organizations or just organizations, they can put up, we will provide X amount of dollars for somebody to do research on chronic wasting disease. And they can really have the outlines and then um, students can apply for that money um, for them to do a study within awesome. their, yeah. So it, it, there's a lot of different things. And also I know there's a lot of work going on um, through our legislature right now to try and increase funding for chronic wasting disease research in the state. Um, so it's not just through, you know, um, that be our federal funding? Yeah, so that okay. would be yeah, federal and, and um, yeah, and state funding for things. Um, but yeah, a lot of this stuff, a lot of research that you see is going to go through grant funding. Good, yeah, because that's it's, it's like you know, you, there's a, it's got it can't be cheap, uh, you know, to to try to get to the bottom of this. Um, and the, the, what I'm kind of alluding to is like you know, you, you would expect to hear uh, you know a lot of the, the the financial stuff coming from grants and stuff like that, some, some of the federal programs. And, you know, uh, Pittman-Robertson, we've referenced that. Yeah. I can't even count on both my hands how many times we've talked about Pittman-Robertson on this podcast. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, years ago when that whole uh, Cecil the Lion thing happened, I'm sure everyone's familiar with Cecil the Lion, when, uh, you know, the guy, guy went over and killed the lion, and the hunting community took an absolute beating uh, by people who had no idea knew very little about the subject and you know it was just a, it was just an all-out assault on, on hunters over this guy killing a lion over in Africa and what I was very disappointed in was the lack of support the hunting community received from manufacturers these people these companies that their primary source of revenue is built around deer hunting or built around hunting in general uh, there was a couple of people that stood up and kind of made a statement on it, but it was a very there's a lot of crickets going okay. on. Um, so, you know, one thing I've I've looked for and haven't been able to find was reference to a lot of these companies starting to kick in uh, to help subsidize a lot of the research that's necessary to try to get to the bottom of CWD. I mean, you figure it'd be within their best interest. You know, all these companies that manufacture archery gear that manufacture, and even these big mm -hmm. companies that own nine different hunting companies, whether it's broadheads and camo and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's one thing, I, I not to say it doesn't happen, but I was having a sh real tough time trying to locate any kind of evidence to support the fact that these companies who rely on money from hunters, uh, they're not really kicking in an awful lot of money to support research to a problem that could potentially harm them in the long run. So I don't know if that's out of fear of um, being the first guy in the pool or yeah. admitting that they're, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you got you've you've got guys like Ted Nugent out there ranting and raving about how a CWD hysteria this and hysteria that, not really doing an awful lot of uh, favors for people who are taking this, you know, ultimately seriously. Now, granted, in, when it comes to Second Amendment stuff, there's not a whole lot of guys better to talk about, you know, Second Amendment. But when it comes to this type of thing, you know, he's not doing a whole lot of favors. Jay Gregory, uh, a famous TV mm. star, you know, he's just. He's one of those guys who just because he's on TV, he thinks he knows Dis- what the hell he's yeah, talking disappointing. about. It's and it's very you know these people rely on us, the consumers, mm-hmm. for their success and you know for their primary source of revenue. I, I I'd like to see. Um, I think we should put the screws to these guys a little bit uh, and you know demand that they throw their uh, hat in the ring a little bit. Uh, when it comes to supporting some of the research for this, uh, that's just my little. That's my statement. That was. Know. That was. Are you gonna that's, get off the soapbox? That's yeah. I'm almost. <laughs> um, I think I might be. I don't know. But I'm just saying. No, you know that, what I no. Mean? That that needed to be said. I did have it written down. I just had Ted Nugent written down. And, <laughs> well, you're you're welcome then. And <laughs> we touched on him a little bit earlier, but I mean, yeah, I, it's, I'm a it's big scary fan. though. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, but, he he's a hell of an entertainer, but he just you know. We, we say we say it all the time that we won't talk about something if we don't know about it, and right. we're also okay with admitting when we don't know something. Like that's it. When we C- screwed up, and yeah. We've come back and said, you know what? I made a mistake. I said this, and it wasn't right. And you know, we we will retract our statements. We because like the the first episode of CWD was basically the the culmination of us taking a week and reading and studying what we could on it, yeah, and then getting together and just talking an exam, about it. You know what I mean? And, and then you get somebody like Ted Nugent who gets a platform like Joe Rogan's, mm-hmm. and it's just you know what can you do about that? Next thing you know, well, he's a very influential just, person, yeah. and I I think you know people need to be very conscientious about how they use their platforms and and you know how they uh, approach a sensitive topic like this. You know, you go all out guns blazing, no pun intended. Um, you know, people are going to take you seriously because, you know, you are where you are because you did something really well, a lot better than somebody else. So you get that platform and all of a sudden, you know, what you're talking about yeah. in the eyes of a lot of people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. And then it's just like the dominoes start falling. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a big Ted Nugent fan for sure, but I was not a fan of that piece no. um, that he did, uh, in regard to the CWD. Now, he made a couple of good points, but not many that I could see, and based on my level of knowledge of the subject. Um, again, I'm not a biologist either, but I don't pretend to be either. You know, I don't pretend to know more than I do, yeah. usually. Yeah. Sometimes, if I'm trying to talk my wife into something, I, I get real smart real quick. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was just laughing to myself over here thinking that the Motor City Madman yeah. is, is just driven by CWD brand. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's his thing. He may he may have eaten a few positive CWD. Positive I'm sure he deer. has. I, every deer he's ever shot has been eating out of a pile of corn. Mm-hmm. So now so, I'm going to have to retract my statement about eating a CWD positive deer. Thanks, I'll Ted Nugent. Well, <laughs> look, it worked for him. I say go for it, man. You know, something good might come of it. You know, if you decide to do that, mm-hmm. let us know. Um, we would really Research like study to right study. Yeah, Donate we would really like to, to study you. <laughs> Yeah. Donate it to science. Be great. Like, hon, I'm going to have to go live at the Game Commission for the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Just, they've, you know, the next 50 so. years. They've got a man-sized <laughs> jar of formaldehyde yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh-oh. Man-sized jar of anything seems appealing. We're going off the rails. A little bit. It's just, see, it hasn't happened yeah. yet. See, you've kept this thing, whole thing on the rails. Sorry, yeah. So I'll, congratulations I'll on that. It's, anyway, but It's but, a good balance, though. I, really. I would say with your comment, though, because in all reality, I, I have a lot of people who I know are not very – I've heard people tell me directly they're not very trusting of the Game Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, they have bad history, you know, whatever. And so they don't want to believe the things that we are saying. And you know what? If you don't want to believe us, that is fine. I mean, I get it. Okay? I'm not going to try and force feed information that you don't want to hear from us. But in the age of technology right now, it is so easy for anybody to claim that they are an expert on something. And it's Mm -hmm. so easy to pass misinformation around. So one of the only things that I would request is if you don't want to fact check things off the game commission, okay, fine. But please try and fact check it off of other things. So when you first hear something, you know, um, don't just go with it. I would recommend check multiple sources and and try and check some reputable sources, okay? Um, the Like I said, the CWD Alliance, it's not something that is state-run. It's run by a lot of nonprofit organizations. So um, they're a really great resource, and they're really great at telling all sides of the story, and they provide studies on there. Their, their webpage is great. Um, I really enjoy their webpage. I really like what they do um, on there. But, I mean, just, you know, fact-check things. Just double-check them um, before just completely – running with it fake news <laughs> watch out for well, that that's the thing you know there's a lot of people out there who say you know pennsylvania game commission uh they don't know what they're doing um uh, they're screwing up our deer herd uh they're, they're making poor decisions here and there left and right uh that being said uh congratulations to uh you guys for i just saw that yeah. you guys were named qdma's agency of the year again I didn't know yeah. that. See huh. that? Yeah, uh, so, so they just hand those out to every dipshit uh, uh, you know, <laughs> who's got a green hat on. You Did know? you really? No. Yeah, so that, freaking that's Missouri, 25-mile <laughs> zones. <laughs> Missouri. Ridiculous. Actually, Shaw. I will say Missouri, they do really good on communications with CWD. Yeah. They're pretty impressive. No, they really <laughs> are. I was contacting them, um, I don't know, probably six no longer than that, probably eight or nine months ago. And I um, was just, like I said, we're trying to learn stuff from other states. Sure. Um, And I uh, stumble, of course, across Missouri's page, and I started going through their CWD information on their page, and I was like, wow, this is what we need. I was like, this is amazing. It's very clear to understand. They have all their stats on their webpage, and it's just, it's like literally Anybody, Joe Schmo, anybody can understand what's on their webpage. It's so easy to understand. I was like, they're doing an amazing job with communications. And so, I mean, uh, they they really do try very hard to, to communicate to the public. So I would say that if I had like a state to try and mimic communication efforts yeah. off the top of mm. my head right now, they would probably be... In Missouri, huh? Yeah. And you have to remember, I'm a communication specialist, so right, that's right. really where I, I strive. That was going to be my next question, Thorne. <laughs> what state has great communications? Yeah? It's Missouri. And and surprisingly, so I'm actually doing, um, for an end-of-the-year report um, on communications that we've been doing on chronic Disease this past year, um, 
I've been trying to see what are other states doing and kind of summing the total of, like, um, the amount of times that chronic wasting disease is mentioned in a news release or something like right. that, you know. And I've been tallying them. And some of the states, um, they surprise me because they're not, in, in my mind, I don't think they really have, uh, they're in the early stages really. And um, some of the states, like North Dakota, is like one of the top states up there so far with really? the amount of uh, news releases that are out there on chronic wasting disease. Um, Wyoming's a big one. Wisconsin is huge yeah. on the conversation with chronic wasting disease in their state. Uh, Michigan. But, like, I mean, North Dakota, that one kind of threw me off because, yeah. like, you don't – and from here in Pennsylvania, you don't hear about that much with chronic wasting disease in right. North Dakota. But they have stuff, like, out there, like, every week. Really? I forget people even live in North Dakota, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, for those who, you know, don't think that you guys know what you're doing, well, then you're going to have to go at the QDMA. Cause, uh, there you go. Yeah. But I mean, it's not just QDMA. I mean, there's been numerous years where uh, National Wild Turkey Federation has recognized Pennsylvania Game Commission in their conservation efforts and in their wildlife management efforts. So, I mean, it's it's not like you guys are a bunch of hacks over there trying to just wing it, throwing it at the wall and hoping it sticks. Uh, so, you know, give you guys a lot of credit for st your stick-to-itiveness. Stick-to-itiveness. Yeah, that's a word, I swear it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of trying to bring this stuff, and again, bringing it out to the public. You're not just kind of keeping it behind closed doors. And if, again, you're not certain, you're not going to make stuff up and be like, well... And then try and worry, hope that nobody catches you. So you don't have to retract it. I mean, that's how a lot of people operate. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, kudos to you guys over there for doing as much as you can to try to get a handle on this as difficult as, as that is. And, and I mean, I don't know if you've got any, any, anything else. No, I just, like you said, I appreciate the transparency. I mean, I don't know how many other agencies would be cool with people doing something like this, but mm -hmm. we appreciate it. I think that it was, it was a good conversation and, I mean, I learned a lot. Yeah, so did I. So did I. So, so you know, in, in the way you kind of look towards Missouri for certain things, I think that uh, some of the states in the in the union could learn a few things by looking your way as well. Yeah. So uh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much yeah. for making the trip. Thanks up for coming to hang on out with us. Yeah. yeah, we appreciate it. So Absolutely. that'll wrap it up for episode eighteen. We will see you guys in episode nineteen. Uh, once again, do the rate, share, all that nonsense, because that helps us. I out. already forgot my little rhyme. Damn it, Jay. All right. We will see you. Thanks for listening.